This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. And our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we jump into the episode for today, I wanted you to know about the Discipleship.org Collective. This is an online community for disciples and disciple makers. You can get free access to this collective with all its webinars, seminars, ebooks, courses, and even personal and church disciple-making assessments. It's a community, so you have the opportunity also to connect with other disciple-makers. You might also be interested to know that there is a premium access option as well, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders. Check this out at discipleship.org collective and sign up for free. Go to discipleship.org collective to get your free membership with the discipleship.org collective. Today we're featuring a main session talk from the National Disciple Making Forum. The theme for the year this was recorded was King Jesus, and this talk is called Shifting to Obedience-Based Discipleship, featuring David Young, Joanne Kraft, Drew Hyun, Ben Sobels, and Christy Spader, with Bobby Harrington as the host. Enjoy. Mary lives in a white room. Everything in her room is white. The walls have been painted white. The furniture is white. Her clothing has been painted white. Even her skin is white. The artwork is white. Everything in the room is white. Everything is white. Mary's a scientist, and her expertise is the color red. So Mary knows everything there is to know about red. She knows its wavelengths. She knows how red affects the human brain. Mary knows the social uses of the color red. There's nothing about the color red that Mary doesn't know, except, of course, she actually knows nothing about red because she's never seen it. Any three-year-old child who goes out and spies a red rose in the garden knows infinitely more about red than Mary will ever know. And that's the story of cultural Christianity. It's the story of people who know everything there is to know about God but just don't know who God is. It's the story of a professor I had once who could read the Bible. I'm not making this up. In 26 languages, but had no interest at all in obedience. So Jesus comes, and the entire story of Scripture is simply this. How Jesus of Nazareth became king of the universe. We owe a great debt to Tom Wright and uh, others who have really kind of restored to the Christian faith in North America the last 20 years, the concept of the kingdom of God. Before that, a lot of us had really truncated the gospel so that it was not much more than just getting forgiveness of sins and then going to heaven and having an internal church service. What Wright has helped us to recover is the idea that Jesus came to bring the reign of God here on earth as it is in heaven. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is this. A lot of us have learned to talk about the kingdom of God. We've learned to talk about kingdom works. And we've learned to talk about life in the kingdom. Only we never crowned Jesus king of our lives. So I've got some news for you. If Jesus isn't king, you don't have a kingdom. In fact, if Jesus isn't king, all you have are body doubles, imposters, and frauds. That's all you've got. 
So as we talk about the kingdom of God, and as we find ourselves now in a world where we can openly discuss what God is trying to do in restoring here on earth, what already exists in heaven, it becomes imperative that we never truncate now the gospel to be just good works, just a great service, just having good friends who have good kids that might date our kids and a good youth pastor or a good children's pastor. That instead, we learn this truth, which introduces Jesus's final command. And remember, his final words ought to be your first priority. He says what? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the earth. But the verse preceding that is Jesus Christ saying nothing other than this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the story of the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, the only thing that Matthew is trying to prove to us is that Jesus Christ is now king of the universe. You have no kingdom if you have no king. So I have four minutes and 30 seconds to persuade you (laughs) that you want to submit to the authority of King Jesus. Because if Jesus is indeed king, and he is, The right response is not mere acknowledgement, like you don't just acknowledge kings, nor is it mere belief, as in just mental assent. The only right response to the king of the universe is obedience. It is to say to the king, I now bow my knee before you, and I promise you, you will bow your knee before him. And you will with your tongue confess that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. But we're up against a few challenges. Here's the first one. Lots of us like having a Jesus as king around, but we don't want the real one. We have what I call fuzzy Jesus. That's sort of a distorted Jesus passed through the fuzz box, and he comes out looking suspiciously like we look. So if you're sort of a traditionalist, fuzzy Jesus comes out arguing about worship styles. If you're a cultural Christian, fuzzy Jesus looks a whole lot like Santa Claus, as we used to call him. If you're a progressive Fuzzy Jesus, man, he looks a whole lot like a social reformer, a mere social reformer. If you're a mystic, Fuzzy Jesus is just a warm liquid massage. But here's the good news. The real king, the real Jesus, the one who actually says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, can actually deliver you from all body doubles, all frauds and all imposters and actually give you the life you really want. If you want the power of King Jesus, bow your knee before him. You see, we have a decision to make. You really do, you have a decision to make. He is already crowned King of Kings. The only question is whether or not you're gonna accept him. And so we want his power We want his forgiveness, we want his beauty, we want his grace, we want his truth. But if you want the results of King Jesus, you have to bow before King Jesus. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so in Matthew's gospel, who is this? It's Jesus who has authority over the Old Testament. It's Jesus who has authority over David. It's Jesus Christ who has authority 
over the alphabet. It's Jesus who has authority over Bethlehem. Jesus who has authority over the wise men. It's Jesus who has authority over the devil. It's Jesus who has authority over the desert. It's Jesus who has authority over paralysis. It's Jesus who has authority over blindness. It's Jesus who has authority over deafness. It's Jesus who has authority over the Pharisees. It's Jesus who has authority over the scribes. It's Jesus who has authority over the wind. It's Jesus who has authority over the storm. It's Jesus who has authority over the lake. It's Jesus who has authority over the law. It's Jesus who has authority over the temple. It's Jesus who has authority over the cross, over Caesar, and over death itself. That's the Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Pick that Jesus because the book of Revelation says when he comes, he's going to have tattooed right here. And that'll make some of y'all feel good. He's going to have tattooed right here a very simple phrase. He's coming on a white horse. King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to your King Jesus. If you want the kingdom of God, bow down to the king who has all authority. Hey, good evening, everyone. Hey, my name is Drew. I'm from New York City, and uh, I've been tasked tonight with talking about making disciples, which is part of this great commission with Jesus as king. And uh, I thought I'd start by sharing a little of my own story. I grew up as a Korean-American immigrant kid in Los Angeles, and uh, I was born to immigrant parents, and uh, honestly, my childhood was, a, was an often difficult one. There was a lot of violence in the household, uh, both from my father, especially towards my mom, and to us. And so in many ways, um, I've had a, a chance to process a lot of how I grew up. But my father, um, being an immigrant himself, not speaking the language very well, just didn't know any better. He came from a war-torn country at the time without a father of his own. And he was simply doing the best that he could. Uh, unfortunately for us, myself, as well as my three brothers, we often felt the brunt of his anger and all the anguish he was carrying. Uh, so a radical kind of switch happened in his life and in our life was when we were in middle, middle school. Again, the way that we experienced my dad was full of rage and anger. When, he, when we were in middle school, he pivots and he ends up becoming a pastor. And so this was just a very disorienting time for us because we're like, wait a minute, you're a pastor now. And he's like, yes, I am. Now, the thing is, his behavior did not change very much. And so the way that we were still living life, and so there was this disequilibrium. When people ask me this question, they say, oh, you're a Christian because you grew up going to church. I'm like, you don't understand. You don't understand like the things that I've had to get over to, to believing in the truth and the veracity that Jesus is king. So anyhow, so my father ends up becoming a pastor. He plants a church. The church does not do so well. It languishes for a little bit. He ends up closing the doors of the church. By this time, we're in high school. My father ends up writing a book after this, after this experience of becoming a pastor and a church planter. He writes a book, and out of nowhere, this book ends up becoming a bestseller in Korea. So overnight then, my father, who his behavior has not changed at home for us, we still experience the same kind of rage and temper, and yet all of a sudden, he's this Korean Christian celebrity. So now he's speaking on some of the largest platforms in the largest churches in the megachurch capital of the world. 
Now, you, you can understand this dissonance then for us, because again, the way that we experienced my dad was so different. Now, the topic of the book that he wrote about was how to disciple your children. <laughs> I know, I'm not even making this stuff up. Now, I've had to work through this in many different ways in counseling sessions. Now, if you can imagine then, so I, I see my father speaking with great eloquence and power on these tremendous platforms throughout the nation and throughout the Korean immigrant community as well. And yet there's this dissonance of what I've experienced at home and some of the pain and the anguish that I feel in my very heart. Now, fast forward a few years, I end up moving to New York City and becoming an intern at a church, a church in Queens that at the time was not very well known. It was this blue collar community in the center of Queens of New York City called Elmhurst. And there was this church there called New Life Fellowship. There was a senior pastor there by the name of Pete Scazzaro who was leading that church. And here I am as an intern for the first time entering into this multicultural space full of incredible complexity and diversity. It was right after 9-11 that I joined this church. And Pete Scazzaro comes to me as this impressionable 21-year-old intern. And he basically says, I want to disciple you. Now, I, immediately when I heard those words, I'm like, uh, I don't know what that means. But if it's anything like what I know pastors do, please leave me alone. <laughs> but Pete, during that time, he said, no, I want to invest in you. I want to show you the way of Jesus. I want to show you what it means to live under his authority. And so one of the images that Pete would often show was an image of an iceberg. And one of the journeys that he was on and that he had gone through with his own life and journey and in his own marriage was this image of an iceberg, if we can put that up on the screen. And of course, in the image of an iceberg, this is what he would explain. The top 10% of an iceberg, of course, is the surface level. And every human heart and every disciple initially is this iceberg, but 90% of who we are is underneath the iceberg. And what he was discovering in his own life and what he wanted to impart to me is that the way of Jesus, when it comes to the great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving others as you love yourself, if you really want to grow deeply as a disciple and a follower of Jesus under his authority, then Drew, we're going to have to get into this iceberg, the 90% below the surface. And one of the things that he introduced to me was he said, Drew, we're going to go through scripture. We're going to pray. We're going to do fasting. We're going to do all of these different facets of what it means to follow Jesus. But we also want to address the defensiveness. We also want to address the ways in which you might know so much about scripture. And yet the way that people experience you is you are cold and distant. The stuff underneath the iceberg. You might be someone who preaches with great power and eloquence. But I want to address the part of the iceberg where you have not found full freedom in your identity in Christ from your family of origin. It was in this that Pete gave me a tremendous gift. He invited me into his home. Over weeks and years, I would be in his basement journeying with him and, him and his wife, Jerry, and their family and discovering what a relational discipleship relationship was like. It was absolutely revolutionary. It was in that context that I learned that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. In other words, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Pete would walk me through many different seasons of my own life. And one of the most extraordinary things that I learned from him in that season is that disciple-making, 
The priority of disciple-making is not a platform. It's people. It's people. And it's never been about a platform. It's always been about the investment in people. And that's the task that we're all called to in this call to make disciples under Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next seven minutes, I'm going to try to convince you to add one question to your baptism protocols of your ministry. It's a question that I believe will help you make baptism the major discipleship moment that Jesus intended it to be when he commanded us to go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a question that we added to our baptism protocols at Cypress Community Church in Salinas, California, after I had a conversation with a man named Bob. Now, Bob is an 80-year-old man. He's five foot six inches tall and Japanese descent. And four years ago, when he was 76 years old, he started attending our church and he subsequently believed in the gospel. And then soon after that, he was baptized. And after he was baptized, he came up to me and he said, okay, so I'm coming to church every week and I believe the gospel and I've been baptized. So what's next? I wonder how many people in churches around America have believed in the gospel, been baptized and are asking what's next. So I shared with Bob, I said, Bob, you need to be discipled. So for the next 12 months, Bob and I were in a discipleship group together with two other guys, and we learned to be disciples and how to make disciples. And so over the last two years, Bob has discipled eight people, and those eight people have discipled 29 people, and Bob is becoming a disciple-making force at the age of 80 years old as a relatively new believer. But that's not my point. My point is, when Bob asked me what's next, I realized something. I realized the gospel I had been preaching was weak. And our baptism protocols as a church were insufficient. Because if you fully embrace the wholeness of Jesus' kingdom gospel... And if you've been baptized in a way that's made baptism a major discipleship moment, you'll know what's next. There won't be any doubt in your mind what's next. You'll be crystal clear on what's next. So my staff team and I sat down and we pulled our baptism protocols apart. And as we were putting them back together, we realized we needed to add one question. And that's the question I want to talk to you about. Now, my friend and mentor, the leader of the Bonhoeffer Project, Bill Hull, I've, said, I've heard him say it a number of times. But he says, when you get baptized, you give up the right to say no to Jesus. 
So we had already put in place two questions in our baptism protocols that called people to begin saying yes to Jesus. The first question is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's one and only son, God's resurrected king? It's a question about who Jesus is. The second question has to do with what Jesus has done. And do you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he was resurrected from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures? And as we looked at those two questions, we realized something. We realized that baptism was a major discipleship moment. And if baptism was a major discipleship moment, it wasn't just an opportunity for me to acknowledge what Jesus has done for me. But it should also be an opportunity for me to pledge my allegiance to King Jesus, to commit my whole life, everything I am and all that I have to serve him. And so we added a third question to our baptism protocols, and this is what it is. And this is the question that I want to encourage you to consider adding to your baptism protocols as well, to make baptism a major discipleship moment. The third question that we began asking people is this, and are you committed to following Jesus no matter what the cost, without conditions or excuses for the rest of your life? Are you committed to following Jesus no matter what the cost without conditions or excuses for the rest of your life? Now, before you start thinking all of the theological exceptions that you want to begin throwing out at me, just consider as a new believer, if you hear that, do you understand what's next? You do. You see, when you say yes to that question as a new believer, you're laying it all on the line. When you say yes to that question, you have effectively given up your right to say no to Jesus. But you have also reinforced your faith in Jesus' kingdom gospel. Through baptism, you have enacted what the Apostle Paul calls the obedience of faith. But you've also made it crystal clear that you know what's next. And what's next is a new life with Jesus of denying yourself taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. That's what's next. So in the 30 seconds that I have remaining, let me ask you three questions. As you make disciples, is baptism at the forefront of your mind? Because it was at the forefront of Jesus' mind when he gave us the Great Commission. It was the first instruction that he gave us after he said, make disciples. When you baptize people, are you making baptism the major discipleship moment Jesus originally intended it to be? And one of the things our staff team realized is that before we can begin asking other people to say yes to this question, we need to, make, we need to ask ourselves that question ourselves. So let me ask you here at the Discipleship Forum this year, are you committed to following Jesus? no matter what the cost, without conditions or excuses for the rest of your life. May God empower you by his Holy Spirit to make disciples with strength and force in the days to come. God bless you.
Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to obey all things, everything. How do we do that? How do we teach somebody to obey all things? Jesus is king, and a king has commands. How are we obedient to the king, and how do we teach that to other people? I'm a mom of four kids, so teaching that means modeling that. Any parent knows when we say something, uh, about five seconds later, they've forgotten anyway. How do we model obedience? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you love them? Do you act like you love them? I'll tell you, um, obedience is hard. It's very hard sometimes, especially in our culture. Being obedient means sometimes you have to do those things that make you uncomfortable. And as the culture is changing, those moments are going to become more and more uncomfortable. But do you love him? Do you? Obedience is God's love language. I love thinking of it like that. About 10 years ago, the best example I have is a story about where we actually were trusting and being obedient because being obedient means a step-by-step process. It's one step at a time. It's little baby steps. Trust, obey, trust, obey, little steps forward. And about 10 years ago, our family... uh, moved, well, we actually thought about moving to Tennessee. And we thought, well, that's the craziest thing we've ever heard. We're, we're originally from California. Matter of fact, we're fourth generation Californians. And that means that when my uh, descendants came to Ellis Island 100 years ago, they went immediately to California. Moving to Tennessee seems so wacky. And my husband and I happened to be here and we spied out the land and prayed, and, and, and God's word matched up, and we're like, okay, let's do this. And by the time we had crossed over the Rockies, I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. What were we thinking? I just don't like biscuits enough <laughs> to go to Tennessee. It was very hard. I'm like, okay. So then I did what every godly middle-aged woman does, I remodeled my kitchen. And I'm like, okay, this is great. We're fine. We love where we were. All of our family and friends, ministry. It was like, yeah. Well, about eight months after Paul and I said, we're burying that. No, I don't know what we were thinking. I get a phone call and I had written my first book and this author had a very big conference coming up. And she said, hey, Joanne, I know you published your first book. Would you like to put your book on my table? I'm like, I'll take the crumbs off your table. Yes, where's that conference? Nashville. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So we loaded up the kids in the car, three and a half day drive, and ended up in Nashville and went to the conference. So my husband and I were there. And we're like, okay, oh my goodness, the Lord was opening doors. We're like, we, okay, Lord, we, we can only say no to God once. I'm kind of scared to say no a second time. So our family moved to Tennessee with no job, no friends, and no family. 
Matter of fact, my, mom, my husband couldn't get his license to work here for about a year and a half, so he had to keep going back to California for work. And that, that beautiful kitchen that I had, well, somebody else got to enjoy it. And I'm telling you, that kitchen was cute, ladies. And I'm sorry my kitchen was cuter than yours, but it was. Way cuter. Obedience is hard sometimes. It is. So we end up in Tennessee in about three years. We've been here now going on eight years. About three years into our time here, I would, I would say to my husband, you know, does this feel like home to you? And he would say, yes, it feels like home. And I'm like, well, home is where you like have roots. Home is where you grew up babies and you know your high school teacher, right? Home isn't, you know, and he's like, no, it feels like home. Well, a few months later, uh, he gets an email from his father. And years ago, his dad had given us a book that we never read because with four kids, remember, okay? And it was a book on the family and we hadn't read it. And my husband said, hey, I got some information about our family, my side of the family. Well, come to find out, my husband is a sixth generation Tennessean. We have more descendants here in Tennessee than anywhere else in the country. Deep roots in southern soil. Matter of fact, we live only five miles away from where his uncle owned tons of property. If you go to the Nashville archives, you can hold in your hand the earliest documents were written by his six-time great-grandfather. Who does that? Only God does that. So we were at church, and this southern gentleman was talking with me. And he said, so where are y'all from? And I said, well, we're from California. And he said, do you love it here? And I thought, and he said, do you love it here? And I said, I do love it here. He said, then welcome home. Mm, I needed to hear that. I really needed to hear that. We need to stop being defined by our last step. Take forward steps, obedient steps, little steps forward. Because here's the thing. Every obedient step that we take forward, that's one step closer to our welcome home. Amen. Well, hello there. Or maybe I should say, hey, y'all, because uh, we're in Nashville. Uh, my name is Christy Spader, and as a team leader with a fairly large campus ministry, vocationally, my life is the Great Commission. The best hours of my day are spent making disciples. And so I love getting to be here with all of you because I sense that this is your heartbeat too. So maybe you'll resonate with what has weighed on my mind lately. I've been thinking so much about the daily struggle to make a difference for God and to walk faithfully for our entire lifetime. Many of us here have devoted our entire lives to making disciples for the glory of God. Yet sadly, our headlines regularly showcase disciple makers of Jesus eaten up by immorality, pride, depression, burnout. If we're so wholly devoted to God and his work, why is this happening to us? In these last few minutes, I get to talk about the words of the Great Commission that I always read, but frankly, I quickly overlook. 
We find the scene of Matthew's grand finale on a mountaintop. With the world as their physical backdrop, Jesus commissions his disciples to go beyond their cities, outside of their comfort zone, and into all of the world, even the places that hated them most, to tell about the king's love. And with Matthew's culminating sentence, he proclaims a promise. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. As I've reflected on these words, this passage has become much more to me than the Great Commission. It has become the Great Promise. In fact, I'd argue that this is the greatest promise in the entirety of Scripture. Think with me, bookend to bookend of the Bible, God's heart has always been to dwell with his people. In Eden, Adam and Eve dwelt with God, and it was good. In Revelation, we'll be restored to God's perfect presence forever. Throughout the Old Testament, God's presence was there, but it was always isolated, temporary, limited, conditional because of sin. And here in Matthew 1, God moves into our neighborhood. We meet Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter 28, Jesus is ushering us into a new era of his presence. The power of the living God and his abiding presence are with us till the end. King Jesus, who calls angels at his command, who makes the devil tremble. King Jesus, who in the disciples' sight caused storms to cease, blind to see, dead to rise. He's with us. No longer is he behind a curtain or isolated in a tent. He's with us. This isn't only for the spiritually elite, the formally trained, or the especially gifted. No, it's for you and for me. And this is a forever promise. Whatever storms come, he's with us the whole of every day. And so from the heights of this Galilean mountain, we can look out at God's future proclaimed by this promise. Revelation gives us abiding hope with another behold passage. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more death. He's with us always till the end of the age. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that if someone desires to fulfill the Great Commission, but fails to tether their life to this great promise, they will not last. If we miss the Great Promise, we miss the entire point. The Great Commission must stand on top of this great promise. So what does this mean for us? Beholding Jesus doesn't mean that that sermon illustration won't strike out sometimes. It doesn't mean that your outreach is going to solve the problem of sin. But as we behold Jesus, we find the motivation to persevere for our lifetime and the power to make a difference for him. We both hold the one 
who modeled perfect obedience in the face of temptation. We behold the one who suffered, modeled suffering as a suffering servant. We behold the one who modeled ministry as the master multiplier. Can you imagine trying to drive a car without an engine? Can you imagine trying to fly an airplane without first stepping foot onto the plane? John 15, 5 tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So how do we do this? How do we behold Jesus? Well, here's what I do. When I am anxiously waiting at my computer for students to register for a retreat that we've tirelessly recruited for, and those numbers don't measure up to what we hoped, I stop. I behold Jesus, and I remember his peace. When I feel utterly, emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted by ministry complexity, relational complexity, team complexity, all the complexities, I stop. I behold Jesus. And I ask, what do I do next? Power and perseverance come from his presence. And his presence, it isn't just a good thing. It's everything. Jesus is what we need, and he's with us. Behold Jesus. He is with us always till the end of the age. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come to you in all different places, in all different spaces, mentally, emotionally, physically. We know there are unsaid things, unspokens that weigh on our hearts today that there are things going on in our lives and our ministries. And Lord, we, we pass those to you. God, knowing that you are with us. God, that you give us direction, that you give us hope, that we can come to you and receive what you have for us. So Lord God, would you, uh, we have eyes to behold who you are. Would we have ears to listen and would our hearts be receptive to what you have for us? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to say something to uh, everyone first. Uh, uh, our day has run a little long, so I really appreciate you staying. Because what we want to do is we want to try to take it down so that when we're going to close in like 15 minutes here, that we walk away with some very specific applications. So I want to thank all these people. Uh, can you imagine each of them in seven minutes? I thought they killed it. So way to go. Good job, everybody. So um, David Young and I have had some fun with the title uh, of his book, the theme book, which is uh, King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. So David, Tell us why you think obedience-based discipleship is a beautiful thing. It's so hard not to bring Kanye West up right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some people don't even know who he is, I found out. <laughs> I didn't know until yesterday. Uh, so, um, 
like uh, if you if so our church experiences signs, wonders, and powers pretty routinely. My, like my new verse in life is um, is fire and blood and billows of smoke. If you want to see like really amazing power, if you want real amazing power in your life and in your church, then you have to make really amazing sacrifices. So that's saying like you, you imagine two circles. In one circle there is awesome, in the other circle there is comfort, and imagine that they never overlap. You can be comfortable or you can have awesome, but you can't have both. And so when we really make a sacrifice and say, okay, I'm all in for King Jesus, he really is the king, I'm giving everything over to him, then all of a sudden when you let go, like amazingly beautiful, crazy, powerful, wonderful things start to happen. And I like the word beautiful because it's the life we were designed for. It's a beautiful life. That's good. If, if Jesus uh, is the king as we believe he is, by the way, can you hear that bell right now ringing? <laughs> um, it really is. God, who loves us, would only want the best for us, and obedience would only be a beautiful, good thing. So when I was listening to uh, these folks speak, uh, Christy, I got I to tell you, you did a great job of showing us the arc of the Bible about the presence of God with us. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but when it says behold, it's actually a command. Like the Great Commission ends with this oh commandment. Tell us a little bit more about why yeah, it's commanded. I must have missed a whole section of my notes. I was wondering why I went so fast. Um, yeah, this is an incredibly important part of this. Um, yeah, that is, that is this, there's two commands in the Great Commission. And the second is behold. And Jesus, and it, the commission transitions with one word, and it is, it's an imperative. It's telling us, look, pay attention, turn your eyes to Jesus. And, and our fast-paced, multitasking, anxious culture needs that reminder yeah. that we need to behold Jesus. And I think we, I mean, this is why this, I asked for this passage because I was uh, so convicted by this that we miss that. We forget. We lose sight of Jesus in everything. But more than anything, that passage is telling us, fixate your eyes on Jesus yeah. uh, because he's the one that will enable us, empower us, and encourage us to continue on and press on yeah. to fulfill the Great Commission. Yeah. Man, y'all, I'm so sorry I missed that part. No, That's a really important no, part. No, no, no. Really <laughs> awesome. So um, here's the thing that uh, I think is super important. And you, you talked about this. But Drew, I want to I turn to you on this because it's really easy to come to the National Disciple Making Forum and think that making disciples is this cool, easy thing. It's relational. Mm -hmm. We have these cool relationships and we want to encourage and inspire everybody so we tell these great stories. But here's why the promise is so important. Because life on life, heart to heart, disciple making is more messy mm. than we often describe. So Drew, 
tell us a little bit more because you you just killed it. And by the way, uh, we made a little mistake on Drew's introduction there. He's with Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and that's what they're all about. Yeah. Drew, Drew, jump in on this point. Yeah. Because uh, I think so many of us, we start making disciples, and then we find it really difficult and messy, and we get our feelings hurt, and it doesn't go well, and we say, I don't know if I want to make disciples anymore. Yeah. Uh yeah, I, I think everyone can attest to this idea of disciple-making being difficult. And ministry itself is difficult. Uh, there's that one passage from Fyodor Dostoevsky where he says, uh, loving in reality is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to loving in dreams. And if we think about the great commandment of Jesus, uh, the two great commandments, of course, like the task of loving another human being. And this is where discipleship that goes beneath the surface is so important. Because if I simply make it about a task list or about strategy, then I've missed the heart of the transformational work that Jesus has for us. And I think in many ways, discipleship is transformational, whereas I think in today's Western world, so much has become informational. And when people think, and this is where platform becomes simply an information exchange um, instead of life on life, which becomes trans, uh, transformational by virtue of the life on life that happens, that goes beneath the surface. So Pete and Jerry, they know all of my triggers, my reactiveness, my insecurities, my immaturities. I also know theirs. And when we begin to, to walk in a relationship together, um, we're beginning to, to mold each other into the, to, and fashion each other in the, into the image of Christ. And, uh, but it is hard work. It's difficult and plotting. And what's difficult is that I know that I'm in church plant world. So many of the strategies that we've been taught are strategies to make things grow quickly. And, uh, and they don't mention the mess, though, you know, <laughs> so which is unfortunate. But it is part of the beauty of what God does is he makes beautiful things out of the mess. No, that's, that's really good. So, um, Christy, you actually gave us a great expression. You know, we often talk about uh, a great commandment heart behind the great commission with a great presence that I think you really highlighted and so the messy work of really being somebody who's discipled to love God and then love people. To be discipled to love people in all this messiness with the great promise that God's with us. We just want to name it. I want to name that it's messy and hard and discouraging, but worth it and life transformational especially when we're fasting and praying and relying on the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, Ben, um, I want you to jump in here because uh, it's impossible to hear what you said uh, about the decision made at baptism to surrender to King Jesus. And I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about, okay, coming out of that and making that commitment. I'm going to surrender to King Jesus. What are some really important steps that is not just a commitment without the power or the relationships to get it done? Mm. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm still trying to get over the fact that Drew just quoted Dostoevsky, word perfect, and everyone's like, let's move on. <laughs> Whoa, dude, that was awesome. That was amazing. Um, yeah, so... What we're finding with people who are 
in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and people who are in their teens and 20s and 30s, is if you, if you tell them what Jesus said and call them to do what Jesus called them to do, they're really inspired. Um, we have a guy in our congregation named Tim. Six years ago, he was homeless. He was living in the hills of Monterey. Uh, he has a bird on his shoulder, like a real bird. And uh, he started coming to our church and he started asking me questions and he didn't want me to flower coat it. He didn't want me to lower the bar. He didn't want to weak source it. He wanted me to, he wanted me to tell him what Jesus said and who he was and what he'd done. And it completely turned him around. He was an addict, homeless man outside of the church, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And within three years, he's, well, now, seven, six years later, he's an usher in our church. He's got bird, you know, talk about messy. He's got this bird on his shoulder. A tattoo. No, I'm talking about a real bird that sits on his shoulder. Wow. And if you want to know about mess, you should see the back of his jacket. It's just... It's white. So, so, but Tim spent, Tim and I have been in a discipleship group for the last year. And, and so Tim, the, the drug addict homeless man, is now best friends with a Navy SEAL and a horseshoer, a guy who puts shoes on horses. So you couldn't find three more different guys, but um, Tim is in his 60s, and then Steve is in his 50s, and then I'm in my 40s. And then uh, our young guy, uh, Jared, is in his 30s. And you got three completely, it sounds like a really bad joke. There's an Australian, a homeless guy addict, a Navy SEAL, and a horseshoer, and they come together and meet in a cafe. Amen. <laughs> sounds like God to me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah. it's awesome. It's messy, yeah. but it's great. Yeah. So, uh, Joanne, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, women being discipled and disciple-making. Is there anything in this conversation that you want to make sure that we're hearing uh, just as we want to leave here today? And I'll I'll just say this. uh, I said it in a a meeting we had early this morning with the leaders. You know, in most churches, the majority of people are women. There's more women in church than men. And uh, one of the things I, I hope you'll hear us saying is how important it is that we activate and empower women to make disciples of women throughout our churches. Thank you, Bobby. Well, I I would say this. I mean, if you're a pastor, you're in ministry, you know the tapestry of your church. And the truth is that men lead the churches, but women fill the seats. Mm. And I know there's a lot of talk, you know, lately about millennials, four of my kids, all my kids are in that bracket of millennials. And while I do understand the, the, that we do need to reach that age, we have a treasure of Titus two women in our seats and we need to empower and encourage those women And I know a lot of times, maybe the women have been in children's ministry, or maybe they've been cooking. And yes, I will say, I'm a much better cook than my husband. Much better. But the truth is, I really think a lot of those women just need a little bit of encouragement Mm -hmm. from the men in their life to, you know, just say, hey, you know what, have you thought about this? Because Titus 2 doesn't say, uh, teach the younger women if you have a seminary degree. It doesn't say, teach the younger women if you're married. Or it doesn't say, teach the younger women only if your adult kids text you back. Mm. It says, teach the younger women, train up the younger women. 
Everybody has something to share, and that's with the men too. So, I mean, for me, I know in this culture, it's, you know, whatever I say, I'm thinking, wow, somebody could take that the wrong way. But the truth is, um, women um, should be discipling women. Should be all of us disciples making disciples across all boundaries. Amen. So, uh, David, I'm going to give the last word to you. You spent a lot of time working on the text. I think in the last year you preached through the Gospel of Matthew, if I'm remembering correctly. So if there's one thing that you would like everybody to walk away from that maybe they haven't heard or they heard, you just want to punctuate it. What would that one thing be? Don't don't make Jesus in your image. Like Go to the Word of God, see the Jesus who really is, and then submit to that Jesus and you'll be surprised at what he'll do. So that's what I would say. That's wow. Good. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, let me lead us in a short prayer, and then we want to encourage you with some resources, and Larry's going to come back up and wind us down. So let's pray. Lord God, I just, uh, on, on behalf of everyone who's here, Thank you so much for loving us and caring about us. God, I pray that you would help us because we love you and we love people that we'd leave here and make Jesus' final command our first missional priority. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to check out the discipleship.org collective and get your free membership to tons of free resources. There's a premium version too. Check it out at discipleship.org slash collective. Thanks for listening. Until next time.